Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Put yourself in this situation this morning. You're in the military service. You're serving in a wartime situation. You're on the battlefield. Your commanding officer calls you in. He says to you, I have a strategic mission that I need you to fulfill. We have a message that we need to deliver to the underground resistance behind the enemy lines. It is such a sensitive message that we cannot transmit it over the radio waves. The only way we can transmit it is through you, a person. I want you to know that it is crucial to the victory of, of, of this battle that you deliver this message. And we can put you behind enemy lines, but I want you to know there's going to be a couple of days that you'll have to travel at your peril, great hardships. You'll have to spend the night out in sub-freezing temperatures. It'll be dangerous. But you must continue. You must guard this message with your life. If you get captured, you must not give the message up. Even under extreme torture. Even the cost of your very life. If you're captured, you must do everything you can to escape. Because the message must be delivered. And when you get to those who are underground in the resistance, you must proclaim the message faithfully. You must say exactly what the message says. No more and no less. Exactly what it says. I want you to leave immediately. You are dismissed. Now what would you be thinking? What would you be feeling if that was you? The first thing you would probably be thinking is, well, what's the message? (laughs) I mean, you didn't tell me the message. What is it? And then you might be thinking, well, you know, I I don't know if I really want to do this. I don't know if I'm really up for this. I don't know if I'm the best person for this kind of mission. But what you have realized you have realized two prerequisites that are necessary for you fulfilling that mission. First, you must have the right attitude. You must want to fulfill that mission. That's why on a mission like this, they don't say, hey, you go. They ask for volunteers because they know the right attitude is crucial. You must want to fulfill the mission. You must have the right attitude toward it. You must be willing to suffer for it. Endure the hardship that you'll have to endure, the dangers. And then second prerequisite, you must know the message. You've got to understand the message that you are to deliver. That you might be faithful to proclaim it. The same is true for you and I. We are in a spiritual army, the army of Christ. And we're involved in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual battle. And we have a crucial message to deliver. It is the gospel. 
And we must go behind enemy lines to deliver that message. And it involves hardships sometimes, inconveniences. But we must continue on regardless of the hardships and deliver the message. And we must understand the message. We must have the right understanding. We must faithfully proclaim the gospel. Not add to it, not take away from it, but be faithful. The purpose of the message this morning is to show you the right attitude and to tell you the right understanding of the gospel. Paul gives Timothy this information over in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Take your Bibles and turn with me. As we see the right attitude that we must have if we're going to guard the gospel and the right understanding we must have of that gospel. Beginning in verse 8. Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The prerequisites for guarding the gospel. As a way of review, last week you will remember that Paul talks to Timothy about the fourfold charge that all of us as Christians have to the gospel. Our responsibility to the gospel. Paul is writing these words while he is in prison. He is in a dungeon and he realizes his death is imminent. And as he realizes he is going to be leaving this earthly scene, he realizes how crucial it is that Timothy and others fulfill their responsibility to the gospel. And that first responsibility is to guard the gospel. Next, it is to suffer for the gospel. The third responsibility is to continue in the gospel. And then the fourth responsibility is to proclaim the gospel. We're talking about that first responsibility in chapter 1, to guard the gospel. But in order to guard the gospel, you must first have the right attitude. And what is that attitude that you must have? First, we must not be ashamed. Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed. Now this word ashamed has an interesting development in the Greek language. As in English, certain words develop over time. And the meaning may change almost completely. Like 25 years ago, gay meant something different than it means today. The King James Bible is misunderstood sometimes because certain words in the King James Version don't mean the same things today. So it was with this Greek word for ashamed. The word first meant disfigured. Or deformed. 
And then over time, it came to mean to be embarrassed about being disfigured or deformed. It meant to feel shame, to feel guilt, or to feel disgrace. Paul tells Timothy he is not to feel ashamed. He is not to be embarrassed. But why? Why is he not to be embarrassed? Well, you see the therefore at the beginning of verse 8? It goes back up to verse 7. He's not to be ashamed and embarrassed because he does not have a spirit of timidity, but he has a spirit of power and of love and of discipline. He says, first, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. The testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Timothy was not to feel embarrassed to tell the gospel. You might be thinking, well, why would he have been embarrassed? Because there was great public reaction to the gospel, negative reaction in Timothy's day. The Jews thought it was utter foolishness that God would send a Messiah and allow that Messiah to be crucified on a cross. That was ridiculous in the Jewish mind. And to the Gentiles, it was equally as ridiculous that anyone would want to be resurrected from the dead. To the Greek mind, this body was a prison house of the Spirit. And what they wanted to do was to be released from this prison. And the idea that someone, once they had died and been released, would want to go back in that prison house of the body was utterly foolish. So the message of the resurrection was foolish. That God would become man and that He would suffer. To the Greek mind, that was outlandish. And so it was good reason why Timothy might have been ashamed. But Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, he is not to be ashamed of Paul, his prisoner. You see, with Nero's persecution growing, there became more and more hostility toward all Christians. You can see why Timothy would have been tempted to be embarrassed to be associated with Paul. Most of all of the Christians in this part of the world had forsaken Paul. Except for Luke and a few others, the others had been embarrassed of Paul and they had forsaken him. Look in verse 15. He says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Paul says, I'm left alone, Timothy. They've been embarrassed of me. They turned away. They were thinking, this Paul, he's just a religious fanatic. Surely he must have gone over the edge, and that's why God is allowing him to be in prison and punishing him. We don't want to be associated with him. He's a fanatic. You know the definition of a fanatic, don't you? Someone who loves Jesus more than you do and doesn't mind showing it. It doesn't have to be too much for some people. Have you ever been embarrassed because you're with someone and, and they started talking to somebody about the gospel? You thought, I can't believe they're doing that. Maybe you were at a, at a restaurant and they started taking, talking to the waitress. Maybe you were at a store and they began talking to the clerk. And it just embarrassed you. You were ashamed. You wanted to run and hide. Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus. 
Notice Paul calls himself the Lord's prisoner. His prisoner, the Lord's. You say, but I thought Nero put him in prison. He did. But he knew the sovereign hand of God was at work. And even in Nero's prison, he was not Nero's prisoner. He was God's prisoner. Secondly, he must have the attitude not only that he is not to be ashamed, but he is to be willing to suffer for the gospel. He says in verse 8, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now notice, according to the power of God. It is by God's power that Timothy is to join Paul in suffering hardships for the gospel. And that word suffer with me is composed of the prefix with, and the word evil, and the word suffer. Paul says, join me in suffering evil. As Timothy uncompromisingly proclaimed the good news, he would suffer. You see, lost people don't like to hear about sin. They don't like to hear about total depravity, that they are lost in their sins, and they're dead in their transgressions, and they can do nothing to save themselves. Not only... The lost people are not like to hear it, but you know, a lot of Christians don't want to hear it. When I was in seminary the first time, 30 years ago, I worked in the school cafeteria as a short order cook. That surprises my wife to this day that I could do that. I keep that secret. But sometimes in the afternoon, it would get kind of slow. And so... Uh, I'd be standing there behind the counter, and this seminary student would walk in, and I'd say, Hey, sinner, come on over here and order something. And you know, he'd look at me like, Who are you calling a sinner? I'd say, Well, you are, aren't you? See, even Christians don't like to be called sinners, do they? He was a sinner. He knew it, but he didn't like somebody calling him that, telling him he was, reminding him of it. So you can expect when you're sharing the gospel and you bring up, hey, you know, you've sinned. You're going to get some reactions sometimes. They don't want to hear about God's wrath. They don't want to hear about hell and the judgment day. You even get a greater reaction when you start talking about election and predestination and God's grace. Surely God lets me decide. Surely it's up to me. You're telling me God chooses? But whether they get upset or not, we must speak the truth in love and suffer if need be. I knew a student who was talking to a fellow student who was not a Christian. And this student was asking questions about the gospel. And this student was talking to this other person. And this other person claiming to be a deist. Uh, now, where high school kids pick up these words, I don't know. But a deist is someone who believes there is a God, but he's not involved in the world. It's kind of the watchmaker uh, theory that God made the world and he wound it up like a watch. And now he just sits back and lets it run. He doesn't get involved in the daily affairs of men. And so this student was saying, where did you get this information? Where do you read that? He said, the Bible talks about God being involved in our lives and, and begin to share the gospel with this person. 
Well, the person got upset. said, all you Christians are alike. You're just arrogant and closed-minded. Just trying to convince me of your way. Now, you can expect a reaction similar to that many times when you share the gospel. But nevertheless, we must share it in love, regardless of what it might cost us. Martin Niemöller was a World War I hero in Germany. But in the rise of Hitler and Nazism during World War II, he stood against Nazism. As a result of that, he spent eight years in various prisons and concentration camps, among the one which was Dachau. Hitler realized that if he could get Martin Niemöller to come over to his way of thinking, that he could squell a large resistance in Nazi Germany. So he sent one of Martin's former friends, who was sympathetic to the Nazi cause, to visit Martin in prison. His former friend came and saw Martin in the cell. And he said to him, Martin, Martin, why are you here? And Martin looked up at him and said, friend, why are you not here? You see, Martin was willing to stand up for what was right. He had the right attitude. He was not ashamed of what was right. He was willing to suffer for what was right. How much more are you and I as Christians to have the right attitude? That we're not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. That we are not afraid and unwilling to suffer hardships for the gospel. But not only must we have the right attitude, but secondly, we must have the right understanding of the gospel as well. First, we should understand the nature of the gospel. Paul says, continuing in verse 9, Who has saved us and called us, With a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. There are three phrases that Paul uses that sums up the nature of the gospel. The first one is, he saved us. Now this is the aspect of the gospel that most of people think about when you talk about salvation and you talk about the gospel. He saved us, he rescued us from hell. He rescued us from His wrath. He rescued us from judgment, from the guilt and condemnation of our sins. Now, this involves forgiveness of our sins. It involves what's known as justification. That God declares us as not guilty. And this is one aspect of salvation. But it's only one aspect. I remember in the days of Jim Baker... Of PTL fame. Some of you are old enough to remember those days. When he was going through his trial for uh, his violations against the SEC, 
Uh, he had supporters outside the courthouse holding up signs that said, Forgiven! Forgiven! As if that should remove all consequences, first of all. And that is part of the truth of the gospel, but that's not all of it. Because not only are we forgiven, but Paul goes on to say, and called us with a holy calling. You see, not only are our sins wiped away, but we're also called to live holy lives. We're called to live in obedience to the Word of God. We're called to be separate from sin. The Bible calls us saints. Every one of us who's born again, we're called a saint, which means separated ones. We're called out. As Paul told the church in Corinth, he says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now this involves sanctification, Christian growth into maturity, Growing victory over sin and temptation. Growing into Christ's righteousness. So not only is there justification, our sins are wiped away, forgiven, we're declared righteous in God's sight, but there's also sanctification where we begin to live righteously. The first one deals with our position of being righteous. The second deals with our practice of living righteously before God and the world. But there's a third aspect He says in verse 10, the last part of that verse, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, the gospel includes eternal life. It includes immortal life. Not only have we been saved from sin, saved from the wrath of God, but we've been saved to a life with God in eternity. We've been saved to heaven. Immortality encompasses not only our spiritual life now, but our future glorification. When we shall receive the very glory of Christ. And this is called glorification. Not only are we justified and sanctified, but we shall be glorified. As Paul talked to the church in Philippi, he says, We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the execution of the power He has even to subject all things to Himself. The truth is, one day, the body you lay in that grave or is laid in that grave, your body is going to come out of that grave And it's going to come out glorified. It's going to come out glorified after the very glory of Jesus and be joined to your spirit. And the Scripture says we will shine forth as the noonday sun before all of creation as trophies of God. So that's the nature of your salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, what is the basis of this great salvation? We need to understand the basis of it. Where does such a great salvation come from? Well, Paul talks about this in verse 9 when he says, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Well, first thing we know is 
It's not because of anything that we do. We're not saved because of any works that we do. We cannot earn this great salvation. We cannot be good enough to deserve it. Paul, in his letters to the churches, continually stresses this truth, that salvation is not based on anything we do. He leaves that beyond the shadow of a doubt. He keeps stressing it over and over and over again. As he told Titus in the island of Crete, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He told the church at Ephesus, For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. He told the church at Rome, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Why does Paul put so much emphasis on the fact that we're not saved by anything we do? Because the devil wants to convince everyone otherwise. The devil wants to convince us that we must do something to be saved. That it is because of what we do we're saved. That's a works righteousness which the Bible says is no righteousness. Because if you are going to go before God on the merits of what you did, you would have to be perfect, absolutely perfect, in thought, in word, and in deed. And all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so Paul keeps stressing against human nature. We want to earn what we get. We want to feel like we deserved it because of our pride. And our pride must be crushed. In humility, we must come before God and say, God, I cannot do anything to earn this. I know I don't deserve it. I know it is purely a gift. What's the basis of our salvation? We cannot earn it. So it can't be what we do. The basis is what God has done. Paul says, according to God's purpose and grace. God's purpose of grace is the basis of our salvation. That God has purposed to save certain ones and present them as the bride of Christ to reign with Him throughout eternity. On what basis did He choose certain individuals? Not works, but according to His sovereign goodwill and pleasure. According to His Sovereign grace. Purely grace. Nothing we do. When God chose me, He didn't look at me and think, well now, let's see, let me project in the future thousands and thousands of years and see that A.T. Stewart's going to be a preacher. No. Even if he had seen that, (laughs) that wouldn't be a reason for him to choose me. Uh Uh-uh. No. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at when he did this choosing. Paul says, in verse 9, according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us, and that word granted means a gift, it's somebody bestowing a gift on someone else, in Christ Jesus, look at these words, from all eternity. In the Greek, it's literally before eternal time. 
before there ever was anybody. When there was only God. He chose those whom He would save. Before we ever were, before we'd ever done anything good or bad, He chose us according to His sovereign goodwill and pleasure. Now, what is the foundation of our salvation? On what does our salvation rest? Since it doesn't rest on anything we've done, and anything is only as good as its foundation, what's the foundation of our salvation? What is the foundation of the gospel? Jesus Christ. The foundation of our salvation, simply put, is Jesus. First of all, it's founded on the life of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is firmly grounded upon the historical work of Jesus Christ done at His first coming. Although the grace of God in Christ was given before times eternal, He revealed it in present time through the work of Jesus. The giving of God's grace was eternal and secret, while the manifesting was historical and public. Jesus lived that perfect life. He obeyed God in every word and thought and action. He completed the law absolutely. He lived God before us. And so our salvation is first of all founded on the work of Christ, His perfect life. But it is also founded on the death of the Lord Jesus. Paul says in verse 10, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, His life, who abolished death. His death is the foundation for our salvation. You see, death is one word that summarizes our human condition as a result of sin. Think about it. First, there's physical death. We die physically because of sin in the world. That separation of the spirit from the body. But then there's also spiritual death, which is separation of our spirit from God. And we're born into this human race, spiritually dead, separated from God. But then thirdly, there is what the Scripture calls the second death, which is eternal death. And that is separation of the body and the spirit from God for eternity. And so when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that's an apt description of our condition in sin. But look at what our passage says. Christ came to abolish death. That word abolished means to overthrow. It means to defeat. It means to make powerless. It means to render impotent. It means to make ineffective. And that's what Christ did. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, when it says that He likewise partook of the same, that is, partook of flesh and blood. He became human, that He might... Render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
It was through the death of Christ that He rendered death powerless for His elect. It was through His death that, first of all, He conquered physical death for His children. The Bible says, even though we die, oh, even though the Spirit leaves His body, that's only temporary. Because that day's coming when that body's going to be raised up out of that grave. And that Spirit that is with the Lord is going to be joined once again to that body. He has taken the pain out of death. In fact, the Bible says for the Christian, life is, death is a gain. Death is a doorway to the Lord Jesus. So He has defeated death. Secondly, He has taken away spiritual death. Because a Christian is no longer separated from God, but we are joined to Him. And then thirdly, He has defeated the second death. Because as resurrected saints, we will abide with the Lord Jesus forever and ever in heaven. And so by His death, He abolished death. That's the good news. But then thirdly, our salvation is not only founded upon His life and His death, but also His ascension into heaven. He says in verse 10 that Christ brought life and immortality to light. Now, life and immortality speaks of eternal life and everlasting life. It is both the quality of life and the duration forever and ever. You see, in His life, death, and resurrection, Christ abolished death. In His ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit comes to enable us to proclaim that gospel. Christians make far too little of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. His ascension was every bit as important and necessary as His life and His death and His resurrection. Because if He had not ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit would not have come. But when the Holy Spirit has come, the Holy Spirit has made manifest the gospel. He enables us to proclaim eternal life. You see the word? He has brought life and immortality to light. You see the word light? It's a Greek word, potizo. We get our English word photo from it. You know, in races sometimes, particularly horse races, if it's real close, they have what? A photo finish. Now, what does that do? That takes a picture and it makes clear who the winner is. Well, the Holy Spirit has come to enable us to make clear the gospel. Eternal life and everlasting life. The gospel truth. You see, in the Old Testament, eternal life was faintly revealed. Kind of like a flickering candle. But in the New Testament, eternal life is revealed like a searchlight blazing forth the truth of the gospel. Jesus lived the gospel before us. Jesus said eternal life is to know thee the only true God and Him whom thou hast sent. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says eternal life is knowing God in a personal relationship 
through Him. If you and I are going to guard this gospel, we've got to have the right attitude. And we've got to have the right understanding. What I'm saying today can be summed up in a true story. On September the 11th, Jeannie Bracco turned on her television set to catch the weather forecast. But instead, she turned it on just in time to hear that an airliner had crashed into the Twin Towers World Trade Center in New York. Her husband, Al, worked on the 105th floor in that building. He was a corporate bond trader for Cantor Fitzgerald. She knew he had survived the 1993 bombing and had even helped a lady with asthma to get out. And so she knew he'd be helping other people get out, but she never even thought for a second that he wouldn't survive. But a week later, they found his body. And she, like the others, Survivors, families were uh, devastated. A few weeks passed and she began to get letters and phone calls and emails from people whose family had been on that same floor with Al. And they said a man had led them in prayer. You see, some of them were able to make phone calls before they died. And and some were able to send out emails. And some even mentioned Al by name as getting them together for prayer. You see, when it became clear that they were not going to get out, Al got 50 of these co-workers together and he shared the Gospel with them and prayed with them. Now, this didn't surprise Jeannie when she found this out. Because Al and she had been praying for these co-workers for years. You see, Al hated his job there. He hated the environment because it was so foreign to his Christian values. But he stayed because he knew God wanted him to be there. To share the gospel. To be a light in the midst of darkness. And he took up his cross because he was not embarrassed for the gospel. Sarcastically, many of his co-workers called him the Rev. Made fun of him. But on that fateful day, September 11th, when the situation was crucial, when chaos reigned, those same co-workers that sarcastically called him reverend, looked to Al. And Al delivered. He delivered the gospel. He had the right attitude. He had the right understanding. Let's pray. Fathers, we guard the gospel. May Your Spirit look into our hearts. Weigh us and show us if we're ashamed of the gospel. Show us if we are unwilling to suffer even mild sarcasm 
and ridicule. To stand against the crowd for the truth of what is right. Father, give us an understanding of the greatness of this salvation that You have freely given us. Of its scope and its nature and the magnitude of it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. If you've never embraced the Lord Jesus, who is the Gospel, it's all about Him, what He did. I want to give you that opportunity this morning to do so. So we sing, you just step out and you come down and say, Preacher, I want this salvation you've talked about. I know I can't earn it. I know I don't deserve it. How do I know if God's chosen me or not? It's simple. If you want Him, He's chosen you. Jesus says, all those who come to me, I'll in no wise send any away. You see, if you've come to Christ, it's because He's done that work of grace in your life. If you want Him, it's because He's already worked. So you don't have to get hung up on that if I'm chosen. If you want Jesus, you're chosen. Now you need to come and reach out in faith and receive what He's done for you. And experience that victory over death. 